0: Let's open our Bibles together to Romans chapter 12, as we are continuing our way through this glorious epistle. We're going to be looking this morning at verse 16, but we're actually going to read the, um, the paragraph that it comes in. So we'll be picking up in verse 14 as we read this morning. Hear now the word of the Lord. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not, become over, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Let's pray together. Almighty God, thank you for your living, supernatural, inerrant word, Lord, we... We submit ourselves before you and we submit ourselves under the authority of your word and we pray by your spirit through your word this morning that you would instruct us, that your spirit would do his good work of, of Lord, searching our hearts and convicting us of sin and unrighteousness, lifting our eyes to see Christ and causing us, Lord, to, to run to him in repentance and faith pray, Lord, that you'd accomplish that which only you can do by your spirit through your word this morning, of calling that which is dead to life. I pray for myself as I proclaim your word, that the words of my mouth, the meditations of my heart would be pleasing in your sight, O oh Lord, my rock and my redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, just before the start of my sophomore year in college, my college tennis team, our coach, entered all of us in this tennis tournament, the Blueberry Festival Tournament in Plymouth, Indiana. And he entered the whole team into the singles tournament, and he entered the, the men's and women's teams together into the mixed doubles tournament. And so back, get, going into my sophomore year, I was the number one player on our team, and the other guys all kind of looked up to me, and our, it was kind of a big jump down to number two. And so they all thought, oh, he's pretty, He's pretty good. And uh, we showed up for this tournament. When we arrived, we saw the tournament draws posted and found out I was the number one seed in the men's singles tournament and my partner and I were the number one seed in the mixed doubles tournament. And my teammates were like, how does this even happen? How do we even, how, how do they do this? And I just turned to him and I said, well, they know who I am. First round of the singles tournament, I step out onto the court to meet my opponent. He's about 35 years old. A dinosaur, ancient, and he beat me soundly in the first round of that tournament. That's what we call being humbled. You walk into this thing and you start thinking, yeah, I think I'm pretty great. And then some old guy beat you. Of course, 35 now is very young. I just didn't understand that as about an 18-year-old. It's one thing to be humble. It's another thing to be humbled. No one likes to be humbled. It's human nature to avoid that. It's human nature to avoid being humbled. And instead, it's human nature to promote ourselves. It's human nature to defend ourselves and make ourselves look good. It's human nature when other people go like, boy, you're pretty great to to just add a little fuel to that fire to stoke those flames. Yeah, I am pretty great. we don't want to step down a notch or two not willingly anyway often even often even when we sort of offer a humble response it's a false humility no i'm not that great keep it coming yeah that's wonderful we all know someone don't we like you could think right now of somebody that needs to be humbled we just don't think it's ourselves I heard a story of a woman who for years and years and years had been trying unsuccessfully to persuade her egotistical husband that he was not the center of the universe. He was convinced that he was better than everyone else he knew, everyone else he came in contact with. He was always talking about himself. He was one of these people who always made themselves the hero of the story, you know. He was the top in sales at his company. He was, he was the most deserving of the next promotion. Anytime he was involved in any kind of sport or game, he had to be the very, very best, or else he was miserable. And this husband and wife end up going to the state fair together, and he steps up to one of these, these um, fortune-telling weight machines where you put your money in, and it weighs you, and then it tells you all about who you are as a person and he puts the coin in the slot, and the lights begin to sw- spin, and the, the things begin to whirl, and it, and it gives him his weight and, and his fortune. It spits this little piece of paper out on the machine, and the husband, he reads the, the portion and the little card, and the front of it says, you're a born leader with superior intelligence, quick wit, a charming personality, and all of this makes you the most attractive to the opposite sex. With a smirk, he hands the card to his wife. Here, read this. A triumphant smile on his face. and She reads the card and flips the card over and looks at him and says, Yeah, it got your weight wrong too. <laughs> well, Paul has been telling us about the effects of grace in our lives. What is the effect that grace has in the life of someone that, that is the recipient of God's grace? And we've been seeing as we've come into Romans chapter 12 that it's the grace of God demonstrated that distinguishes us. It's what sets the people of God apart. It's that our lives are marked by this grace that God has given to us. And So in chapter 12, Paul's been showing us how it is that we must live as people of grace, as those who have been made sons and daughters of God through Christ by a gift of His grace. And really in, in simple, clear Undeniable and unavoidable language, Romans 12 has been telling us after 11 chapters of expounding for us in great depth, the magnitude, the, the infiniteness of the grace of God, Romans 12 has shown us that if we have been given that immeasurable grace by God, then, then we too in all situations and with all people must live as gracious ambassadors for him what so we've been seeing in Romans 12 thus far. And so last week we saw this in verses 14 and 15. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. We're to be gracious ambassadors of God to those who are rejoicing. We're to be gracious ambassadors of God to those who are sorrowing. And we're even to be gracious ambassadors of God to those who persecute and oppress us. And now in verse 16, he says this, live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. The, the King James and the New American Standard translate this first phrase, live in harmony with one another, as be of the same mind towards one another. Paul, Paul said, uses this same expression to the church in Corinth, to the church in Ephesus, to the church in Philippi, he tells them all the same thing. To live in harmony with one another. This, this word harmony captures the, the idea as it's translated here in numerous translations and the English Standard Version, which I'm using this morning, translates it as harmony. Live in harmony with one another. It, it captures the sense of the word very well. Paul's not referring to uniformity here. He's not even referring to unanimity He's not saying everyone has to think alike. If if you belong to Christ, you all have to think exactly alike. One commentator says this. Paul's referring to a kind of harmony which proceeds from a common object, common hopes, and common desires. You may be very different from others in the body of Christ, but you have the same object of faith. You have the same hope in the gospel. You have the same desire to glorify God. And this is how the church of Jesus Christ can be so diversified and yet so unified. This is how when we meet a Christian who looks very different from us, whose traditions are very different from ours, who lives in a different part of the world, we meet a Christian and there's an instant kinship, an instant bond with them. Because of this unity. When when Paul says live in harmony with one another, he's telling us that one of the marks of graciousness is unity. Unity with one another. Not uniformity. We're not all carbon copies of one another. God doesn't intend that for us, but we are united. Truly united. Eternally united because of our union with Christ. And the outward evidence of that, the outward evidence of the spiritual reality of unity with one another is harmony. We're in harmony with one another. And here at Maple Grove, we're in the middle of what's really an interesting transition. We, we've had a lot of, of new faces come. I mean, the last few weeks, we've had a lot of faces just not here at all. It's really a test of, of this blessing of harmony that, that we are called to and that is given to us as a gift from God because we're not all the same. It used to be for, I don't know, a hundred plus years in this church, oh, there were age differences, there were some small differences, but everybody was pretty similar. Fairly similar traditions, fairly similar backgrounds, fairly similar, similar ideas of how things should be done in the church. Well, we're not all the same. We don't all have the same traditions. Those of you that have been a part of this church for a long time might have noticed the new people that have come to the church in the last five years, they don't have any of Maple Grove's old traditions that we cherish so deeply. They they didn't live all their lives in this same church. They have different traditions. We don't all dress the same. We don't all have the same taste of music. We don't even all have the same convictions about certain elements of corporate worship but the health of this church will be seen in our harmony. As we follow Christ in obedience to His Word and and show love and grace to one another in all things, that's where we'll see the effect of God's grace in our lives. That's where we see graciousness put into action. We'll see the grace of God demonstrated in our lives. In the way that we, in humility, put others' needs first. And even put others' preferences ahead of our own. Warren Wearsby, in in his book On Being a Servant of God, says We've never been asked by God to manufacture unity in the church. It's already there. It's already there. We we have unity, we have union with one another. We don't have to, to produce it, we're already one in Christ. But we have an obligation to maintain the unity that Jesus Christ died to create. So this is the common passion, endeavoring to keep the unity of the spirit of the bond of peace, as Paul says in Ephesians 4. It's not our responsibility to produce unity in the church. It's our responsibility to protect it. It's our responsibility to live it out. God's already given it to us. And one of the marks of the true church is unity. We are one body. Because of our union with Christ, we have been united to each other. And and so that that what that means is we have this this unity with with all who are truly in Christ. And Maple Grove has it with with all other true churches whether they their worship looks like ours or not. Whether their traditions look like ours or not. We have this true unity with them, and it also means we don't have it with those who aren't truly in Christ, with those who don't have the same object of faith, the same hope that we've got, the same gospel that is proclaimed, and so that will dictate who we will and will not associate with as a church, but because of our union with Christ, all who are truly in him we have been united to each other. And so Paul says, our actions should match our spiritual reality. This is a reality. It's not based on how we feel. You, you might come to church and say, I just don't feel connected to anybody. I don't feel like there's any unity there. The truth is, Christian, that's the spiritual reality is there is unity. Now, what are you going to do about it? How, how are you going to foster that? How are you going to cultivate that? How are you going to cause that to be felt and experienced? Generally, I find the people who who complain, and being a pastor for long enough, you get to hear this complaint a lot, that nobody reaches out to me, nobody talks to me, no one takes notice of me. I don't feel this family bond in the church. I've noticed one common denominator in 100% of the people with that complaint. They're not doing it either. They're expecting everyone to cater to them. It's the least humble position a person can have. Hey, here I am, cater to me. Make me the center of the universe that all of our worlds are going to revolve around. The truth is, Christian, we're all called to cultivate and foster this unity. And so if you feel that lack of unity, it it ought to be um, translated into action on your part. We ought to be a church of people who are eager and intentional in cultivating the experience of the genuine true spiritual unity that we have with one another. Our actions ought to match our spiritual reality. We're, we're not marked as the gracious people of God by all having the same personality. We don't all have the same personality. We won't all have the same personality. No, it's by having the same purpose, by having the same purpose. In the simple of, simplest of terms, this first phrase from Paul, to live in harmony with one another, is nothing less than a call from the Apostle Paul for us to love one another and get along. That's what you're commanded to in the church. Love one another and get along. Remember in verse, 12, uh, verse 10 of Romans chapter 12, we're called to, Paul says, love one another with brotherly affection to outdo one another in showing honor. That's how we put this into practice. These are the marks of gracious people. This is what gracious people do. It's what Christian unity looks like, and it makes the world take notice. The world doesn't have anything that replicates this. Not really. The world can't explain it. It's because it's a product of our union with Christ, and the world can't understand that. But but because we are in Him, because we have union with Christ, we are radically, graciously united with one another. That's why we often say, as we come to the Lord's table at the end of the service, this isn't just a, a reminder of our union with Christ, it's a reminder of our union with one another. It's a glorious reminder on a million different levels. Well, verse 16 here really divides into three phrases that all contain the same Greek root word. They all relate to our thinking, to to setting our mind on something. Paul says, live in harmony with one another. Literally, the Greek reads, the same things towards one another minding. We're minding the same things towards one another. That word harmony actually comes from this Greek word for thinking. And then he says, do not be haughty. It's the same word, literally. Not the things haughty minding. It's a word for thinking. What's going on in our minds. He says, do not be haughty, but associate with the lonely. And then he says, never be wise in your own sight. It's the same Greek root word again. It means don't be high-minded. So it's this word for the mind, for our thoughts, for our our thinkings, for our meditation. And when we have a word repeated three times in a verse, it means it's very significant. And this word for thinking is being emphasized for a reason. Remember at the beginning of Romans chapter 12, Paul calls us, Be transformed by the renewing of what? Of our mind. Being in Christ, it's not a matter of, I think a little differently than I did before. I was a non-Christian in these years, I was an unbeliever, and, and Christ saved me, and now I just think a little bit differently. I think a little differently than the world. I'm not quite the same as them. That's not what it means. It means you have a brand new mind. Your thinking has been totally transformed. It's one of the most significant changes in the believer, I embraced these things, and now I renounce these things. I didn't value this thing. In fact, Paul says, it's not just that you didn't value God, you hated God. And now I love God. It's a complete and total transformation. And one of the most significant parts of that transformation is the way we think about one another in the body of Christ, in the church. We go from people who are, who, who are living with ourselves as the center of the universe. Everything is about me. And we're transformed into people who are supposed to look at others as much more valuable than ourselves. Their needs more valuable than mine. Their wants more valuable than my wants. This is a supernatural change that comes in the believer When God saves us, but it's something that must be cultivated. And that's why we have these commands we keep getting in Romans. We're supposed to work towards this end as well. And so Paul gives us three specific ways we ought to think here in this verse. Live in harmony with one another. Number two, don't be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Number three, never be wise in your own sight. We've We've just made it through the introduction to the sermon. We're ready to start the sermon now. First thing he says, live in harmony with one another. Well, we've been, this is what we've been talking about already. There is an essential unity in the body of Christ. It's a unity that's already ours in and by the Holy Spirit of God. It's ours because of our union with Christ, and yet it must be cultivated. This unity takes work. This unity that is ours eternally, supernaturally, truly takes effort on our part, to maintain, to cultivate. Harmony in the body of Christ, though, is just as important as harmony within the human body is. When there's disharmony in our physical bodies, when when one group of cells is devouring another group of cells, that's called cancer. And it will kill you. It is disastrous. Disharmony, though, is no less serious in the local body of believers. This harmony in the church. And so we're commanded repeatedly in Scripture, but again here in verse sixteen, live out your unity with one another. The truest thing about our relationships with one another—it's not our affinities, it's not what we have in common, it's not that we're, our backgrounds are similar or our likes are similar or our taste in the kind of music is similar or the way we dress, any of those things. The most essential truth about you and I and our relationship with one another is we are united together in Christ. He's made us family, brothers and sisters. That's number one. Number two, do not be haughty, but associate with the lonely. Don't be haughty-minded, Paul says. Now Paul then anticipates that we're going to hear him say, don't be haughty-minded, and we're going to go, oh, I'm not. I'm definitely not, so good advice. I know some people need to hear it. I'm definitely not. I'm very humble. And so he adds this, associate with the lowly. It's a call to impartiality here. Will you associate with the lowly, whoever the lowly are to you? And here's the test of our humility Will I associate with whoever the lowly are in my mind? Will the public school teacher and the homeschool parent encourage one another's ministries? Or do they both think the other one's stupid and wrong? Will the older person and the young 20-something who dresses weird and is too loud seek to serve and love and bless one another? Will people of all ethnicities lay aside all ethnic vainglory in all of its forms and embrace one another will they emphasize their bonds of Christian brotherhood over all other so called identities will the white collar and blue collar workers pray for one another regularly and help bear one another's burdens will PhDs be taught in Sunday school class by someone with an 8th grade education Paul says, don't be haughty in your thinking. James chapter 2 verse 1 says, My brother, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Leviticus 19.15 You shall shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great. We show no partiality to to anyone on any side. Galatians 3 verse 28, There's neither Jew or Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's neither male nor female. You are all one in Christ. The common wisdom of church growth experts, for many years now, it's being taught in Bible colleges and seminaries and and by these experts that'll come to your church and tell you how you can get a big church. I get these texts, or emails, by the way, just, I guess, word got out that I'm a pastor, And I get these emails on like how how you're supposed to be doing church and how you're supposed to grow your church. And they're all stupid. They're all the most ridiculous things you've ever seen in your life. But the advice to pastors and church planners is this. Identify your target audience. It's just from the marketing world. It's just what businesses do. You've got to figure out who you're selling to. Who's your target audience? What's your key demographic? And then advertising caters specifically to them. The look's got to be their look. The The advertising has to to look like what they're drawn to. The music has to sound like what they like. You just pick the group you're going for and go for them. And so you see churches and church planners kind of, you know, they the you're supposed to be able to identify, well, we're going to be a church of uh, suburban middle class people. We're going to... We're gonna be a we're 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 gonna be a, an urban young de- demographic. That's who we're going for. We're looking for a specific demographic in this specific income bracket. We want these kind of people. These are who we are going after. And here's the thing about that, though: it is the common wisdom. It is absolutely disgusting. It's gross and perverted. It's worldly, to use the Bible's term. Paul says to us, don't be haughty in your mind. You you need to put yourself, Christian, right smack dab in the middle of the lowly. That's where you need to put yourself. To think that no one is beneath you. That no one is is not in your class. Paul says to us, don't be haughty in your mind. Charles Swindoll tells us this story of The children in his neighborhood had been working and working, and they built this glorious fort, this glorious uh, clubhouse out of cardboard that they had collected and built themselves this this clubhouse where they could meet to conduct their important eight-year-old business. And they finished their work on it, and they decided, well, a clubhouse, a club's got to have membership rules. What are our membership rules going to be? And they came up with three rules for the clubhouse. Number one, nobody act big. Number two, nobody act like you're worthless either. Number three, everybody act medium. (laughs) It's basically what Paul's telling us here. Act medium. Nobody's beneath you, nobody's out of your reach. You're not worthless because you're in Christ. You're not better than anyone else because the only good thing about you is that you're in Christ. We're to associate with the lowly. This, this word lowly here, it's the same word that shows up in Matthew chapter 11 verse 29 when Jesus describes himself as gentle and lowly in heart. So lowly doesn't mean scum of the earth. What does he mean when he says he's lowly in heart? Philippians 2 verse 7, he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, by being born in the likeness of, Men. This is the lowliness of Christ. He he willingly humbled himself to take the form of a servant. He he wasn't born into a high-ranking, rich family. He wasn't born into the aristocracy. But even if he had been, even if he had been born into the wealthiest, most privileged family that had ever lived in the face of the earth, the second person of the triune Godhead, taking on human flesh would still be the most incredible, mind-blowing, infinite condescension that ever has or ever could take place. And he didn't just stop there. He, he, was, he was so willing to associate himself with the lonely that people called him, we read in Luke 7, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Jesus came and he, and he, and he placed himself right in the middle of people. Consider who he chose to be his people. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26, Paul says this. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world. Even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. John MacArthur in his commentary says, the point is there's no aristocracy in the church. There's no place for an elite upper crust. It does not exist in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. The, the, that, that, that group, and again we can't take the lowly and just say it's this one demographic because it might be different to you than another, that group that you're tempted not to associate with. You no, know, the church is just an association of ordinary people. Whoever you are, you're just an ordinary person. Nobody acts big, nobody acts small, everybody acts medium. That's the church. It's interesting to note here, too, that this word Paul uses, lowly. It's an interesting word in the Greek. Greek works a little different than the English language does. In the Greek, this same word can be understood two different ways. If the grammatical gender of the word is translated as neuter, it means lowly or ordinary things. But this same word, spelled exactly the same way, can also be translated with a grammatical gender of masculine, and it means lowly or ordinary mankind. Well, how do we know which it is if it's the same word spelled the same way? Well, context is usually what tells us. Are we talking about low things or, or lowly things or lowly people? Paul here seems to be intentionally vague to encompass the whole sphere of it. The whole span of meaning. We can take all of this meaning with us. Whichever way we take it, this is a mark of, of graciousness. It is a mark of the, the effects of the grace of God in the life of the believer. The, gra- the, the gracious believer does not see themselves as above ordinary tasks. Ordinary things in the church. They don't think that their needs need to be catered to. They don't think that all their wishes have to be carried out. They don't think they're too important to serve. To sweep a floor. To serve in the nursery. To do the unglamorous thing. And also the gracious believer is not above ordinary people. They don't think they're better than anyone else. They don't think that anyone is beneath them. Either one of these things, thinking we're above ordinary things or thinking we're above ordinary people, has no place in the church. It's the opposite of graciousness. When the Christian thinks they're above anything, It proves that we don't understand the grace that we've received. We think, on some level, there was something about us that is so wonderful that it merits this work from God. What the grace of God does in the life of the believer is produce in us a comprehensive humility. How could we be arrogant? The more we understand the grace of God, the more we are humbled. More it humbles us, the deeper we go. You can't read Romans chapters 1 through 11, can you, and walk away like, I'm pretty great. I've really been pretty wonderful from the start. I'm very deserving of good things. No, it's all of grace. The more we understand it, the more humble we become. Third, then, never be wise, never be high minded in your own sight really saying the same thing Paul already said in verse 3 of Romans 12. It's just coming at it from a different angle. And the reason he repeats himself is because we need to hear it. We need to hear it repeated. We need to be reminded of it often. The natural man is addicted to himself and needs to be reminded often to not be high-minded in his own sight. In verse 3, he says, by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, Not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment. And he just comes at it from a different angle now in verse 16. Never be high-minded in your own sight. Don't be conceited. Friends, we need that reminder. You need that reminder. I need that reminder. We may think, oh, I'm never tempted to be conceited. No, you need that reminder. You are tempted to be conceited. This is exactly what the natural man does. His greatest thoughts are of himself. His highest thoughts are to do something for himself. What will make him happy? His grandest thoughts are always about himself. He is wise in his own eyes, in his own conceits. And this is true, not just of the person who thinks they're the greatest thing that has ever graced this earth, It's also true of the depressed person who's pretty sure they're worthless. Both are consumed with their own vain conceit. Totally absorbed in thoughts of themselves. It's not just the two far ends of the spectrum. It's the state of all of us apart from grace. It is the only human condition apart from the intervention of the grace of God. We cannot help but worship ourselves. We cannot help but make ourselves the center of the universe. It is only when the, the Holy Spirit of God performs a miracle upon the believer. Our, our eyes are open to see our sin, to, to feel the weight of it. We're allowed to, to, to feel, as a gift of God's grace, the crushing weight of our sin and the just condemnation that it brings. We're caused by the Spirit of God to, to, in that moment, see and to feel our need for a Savior. And then He lifts our eyes to see the Lord Jesus Christ, sinless, perfect, crucified, risen. And then He causes us to trust in Him alone for forgiveness and salvation. And then he places us in a family, in the church. And we discover just how much transformation needs to keep occurring in order to daily renew our mind. It is a supernatural work of God in the life of the Christian that rescues us from this self-worship. But it's one that we, by the Spirit of God, are enabled and commanded to cultivate and to work towards and to grow in. It's the only way out. It's the only way out from the crushing weight of pride and self-worship. It's the only way to true humility. It's the only way to true unity in the church and harmony with one another. But the reality of the gospel, that we who were dead and bound in our sin and condemnation were miraculously freed as a a work of God alone, not through any of our own doings not through anything that gives us any share of the glory once, uh, whatsoever, that should produce in us the freedom of true unity with one another. If the gospel's right about you, it's not that you'd fallen overboard and you had your life vest and, and you were kicking hard and hanging on to that life vest and you were about to drown, yes, but, but then God plucked you out of the water. no. You were dead at the bottom of the ocean floor, and God alone reached down with no help from you whatsoever, and He plucked you out, and He caused you to live, and He placed you on dry ground. If that's true, friends, we don't always have to be right. If we're not saved because of any goodness or smartness on our part, we are free from the crushing burden of having to be the cause of all our own salvation of having to always be right, of having to always be on the top of our game. We can be open with one another. We can be honest with one another. We can be vulnerable with one another. This is a glorious, glorious gift of the gospel. And also we need to be accountable to one another. God has designed us to need each other. We need each other's counsel. We need each other's perspective. And that, that person who's the lowly to you, that other Christian, you just can't understand them. You think they're kind of wrong because they like different things than you and do things differently than you. Friend, you need, their, you need their viewpoint in your life. You need to hear it. We need each other's perspective. We need each other's counsel. We need to learn to not take ourselves so seriously. Christians take God very seriously, take His word very seriously, and we take ourselves not so seriously. I'm not a big deal. We need to be able to admit when we're wrong. I don't have to have all the answers. Neither of those things are easy, not taking ourselves so seriously, admitting when we're wrong but they are so profitable. There's so much freedom and happiness there. A.W. Tozer said, never be afraid of honest criticism. Well, none of us likes criticism. Tozer here is talking about honest criticism. It is the wounds of a friend. Never be afraid of honest criticism. If the critic is wrong, you can help him. If you're wrong, he can help you. Either way, somebody's helped. That ought to be our attitude. We are for each other. We love each other. Christians above all people should be clothed in humility. And I just want to close here with Paul's words in Philippians 2. Starting in verse 3. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. In humility count others more significant than yourselves. This is the call. The way of the cross is to be the way of life for the Christian. The way of humble submission to God and humble service of others. And if we belong to God, we will live out this biblical ethic. We will live our lives in light of the gospel, in humility and full of grace. And and as we do that, we experience the blessing from God. There is great blessing in humility. And we will be a blessing from God to everyone we come in contact with. Don't you just meet people sometimes and your spirits are just lifted up by the grace from God that you receive through them? That's the call for us, to intentionally live our lives that way. That all that we come in contact with will benefit in some way from having bumped up against us. It's the way of humility and it is the way of the cross and it is the call for us brothers and sisters in the church. Let's pray together. Almighty God, we do thank you for your word. Lord, it it is humbling to be reminded of just how not humble we are. To be reminded of just how easily pride creeps in, selfishness creeps in, how easily disunity and disharmony can come between us because of our own selfish ambitions and desires. And I pray, God, for us as a church, Lord, that you would, by your Spirit, in your kindness to us, reveal such sin in our hearts quickly. Lord, that we would turn from it, that we would walk in true harmony with one another, that that glorifies you. Lord, that we would not be haughty minded, that we would not be filled with conceit and think of ourselves more highly than we ought, that we would, Lord, we would be those who have been humbled by your grace, empowered by your grace, sent by your Spirit to, Lord, those who, who are in need of grace from you, Lord, particularly those who are in need of salvation. And also, Lord, our brothers and sisters in Christ, to whom we are supposed to be vehicles of your grace, I pray, Lord, that you would make us so for your glory and for the good and the joy of your people. Thank you, Lord, for your faithfulness to us. Thank you for not abandoning us. Thank you for your spirit who dwells within us, who has not only caused us to become your sons and your daughters, but who empowers us and sends us as gracious ambassadors of your kingdom pray, Lord, to that and that you would make us more faithful for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.